Welcome to another, another BritFlix.com podcast. My name is Stuart Wright, and today's very patient guest is Ian Savonius. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. It's an honor and a privilege to be featured on the on this uh, interview show. Indeed. On this interview show, we will do <laughs> three films that impacted everything in your adult life. But before that, we're going to talk about your film, The Lost Record. Before going into any detail about that, do you want to give people a brief synopsis as to what The Lost Record is about? The Lost Record is a feature-length film made by myself and uh, Alexandra Cabral. We uh, co-directed, co-produced, co-edited it. I'm the writer. I'm, you know, it's based on a record, an escapism record, which is called The Lost Record. And it's, um, it was sort of uh, the idea, it was based, the record was based on this idea of this is a record, that's the lost record. It's a record that was passed over unfairly by critics and uh, fans and the publicity machine. And it was somehow, you know, you know, ignored. But um, you are a really discerning, a sophisticated who appreciates this lost record, you know, you know, and this is a cliche in music and in culture in general. It's this idea of the lost artifact. Uh, Velvet Underground's whole career is sort of based on this idea that they were a lost, you know, a lost record band, you know, like a band that nobody appreciated in their own time, but now you are clever enough to appreciate the, the Velvet Underground, you know. So the lost record was this idea and it was sort of like, let's not spend 10 or 20 years in the wilderness with this lost record. Let's just get, you know, cut to the quick. It's a great record. And you should be, you, and you're special enough to appreciate this lost record. So the, the film is sort of based on that song, but it's, it's a sci-fi film. And it's uh, set in a kind of indeterminate future past. It stars a girl. She finds a record. She develops a relationship with the record. She sees the record as, as, as representing a kind of, you know, uh, rebellion against this alienated culture that she lives in, which is, you know, kind of fascistic and just uh, dehumanizing. And the record is provides solace, but at the same time, the record wants to be more popular. So the movie is about the tension between the girl's kind of ownership of the, the record and the and the record's natural inclination to be uh, bigger. It's kind of like uh, so. Is the is the record sentient? Like like um like in that film Rubber, where the rubber tire's sentient. Wait, sentient? Like sentient. sentient? Sentient, as in the record? Oh yeah, is self determined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 record has a will. Okay, the cool. Definitely has a will of its own. So the film is really about you know it's really about art, love, and fetish, and identity, and you know consumerism and. And uh, and about the control state, you know, that we you know live in with col- you know in terms of culture and the kind of cultural control. So uh, so it's it's I think it's a really great film. It's really would resonate with pretty much anybody who saw it. You don't have to be an escapism fan. You don't have to be part of underground music. I think you you could play this film and uh you know at the drive-in with you know with uh, the Goonies and everybody would just love it. What was the kernel of the idea that sort of led to the film pe- that you've just described? 
Well, the record, really. The yeah. Escapism record. So yeah, I do this band called Escapism. I made this record. It's called The Lost Record. And it was basically the idea for the film. And then the film, obviously, you know, is an expanded idea. The, the film is, you know, the, it's not like Hard Day, you know, it's not like Hard Day's Night, but it is based on, you know, this so- song, this record. Hmm. And uh, so in the movie, the record is sort of, it is sort of the, the lost it's kind of it is sort of sort of escapism's lost record, but not really. I don't know. It's but anyway, you know that was the jumping off. So what in, in terms of I mean, obviously, a record and a film are two very different mediums. What was what was this challenge? And obviously, for me as a writer myself, I'm I'm thinking story. So what were the storytelling challenges of taking a record and adapting it into what would be a film? Well, I think, I mean, making a film is interesting because in a sense, it's the least, it's kind of the most literal art form. You really have to show people everything Mm. in a way to keep the kind of suspension of disbelief going. Whereas any other art form, you know, like a painting, you don't really have to explain anything about a painting. You don't have to explain anything about a song. A song can take many perspectives within one song disjointed information it can be absolutely like collage you know a record is just a bunch of dissociated sounds that may or may not have a single theme uh, but a, a feature film you know is a very it's a very it's it's you kind of have to show people a lot you know so that so that was kind of that's kind of the challenge of switching mediums you know um is you really have to be more you know, you forget when you're making a film, you realize, oh, we have to show this. You know, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, could you give it without, without if it's not too spoilery? Then, what, what would be an example of something that you wouldn't think twice about in any other medium? But then, in terms of film, what ideas you were playing with, you had to. You know bring how it. someone gets from here to there, or, or whose perspective we're looking at. You know, just all these kind of film conventions. You know, because Alexandra and I we didn't go to film school, you know, we were kind of, we just were winging it, you know, based on our love of film. Right. And uh, so we, you know, there would be a lot of stuff that we just wouldn't sort of countenance as a concern. Mm. And, uh, you know, luckily we had, we were, we made the film, you know, essentially in our house, in our neighborhood. So it was, you know, we could pick up shots. Yeah. But, uh, so, you know, when, once we, you know, it's like in, you know, in blow up, Right. You never, re- you never, when he's in the room in the party and he's, you know, and he's like, I've seen someone murdered, you know, you never think about that. He, there's a, there's a shot where he goes up to the door of the party, but you don't really ever remember that shot, but you absorb it as information. So when you're making a film, there's a lot of information that you have to give the viewer that they're not going to remember, but they're going to absorb. From an aesthetic point of view, then. What were your conversations like with Eric Cheevers from a cinematography angle? What, what, what? Well, they you... were a lot of practical things like that because he was sort of the one who would be like, "Hey, what about this?" Did you have any ideas about the look and feel you were going for, and like what references were you bringing? Not necessarily film ones, but what references were you wanting to? Well, Alexandra and I, we just both love you know sixties film, Italian sixties film, so we were just. That was our reference point. Okay. So we were both sort of bringing that in, you know, and she actually got, you know, Rudy Gernreich to give us all the costumes for the, for the movie. So we have Rudy Gernreich, 
outfits. And of course, Rudy Gernreich did the costume design for Space 1999. So it's in this kind of, you know, 60s future mm. idea. So that Ret- kind retro of, future. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, uh, but very unis, you know, unisex kind of thing. And, and uh, um, so. Yeah, I, so, I just yeah, re- I just it, recently watched uh, Death Race 2000, which obviously was Roger Corman's view 25 years in the future of where we were going to be. And it's really interesting to see how how, how the future didn't pan out. Yeah, it's a great film. Well, it's pretty similar. Pretty similar to now. Now, give it, if, if, like you say, you're not, you're not film school trained. You, 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 you use the expression winging it. Um, they say that when you make a film, you write it, you produce it, and then you edit it. So in the edit process of making this movie, what new discoveries did you make about the film that weren't sort of evident um, in, in the other two? Well, lots. I mean, the movie just got more and more kind of profound, you know, as we worked on it, we realized that there were a lot of ideas that were, that weren't, weren't even conscious that were yeah. coming into it, you know, that, and that, the, I mean, the, it just, uh, I, we, you know, we really believe in this movie. It's like mm. a really, we don't have any, distribution and we don't really we're not interested in putting on the inner on the internet to be just part of the sea of garbage you know and uh we you know part of our thing is we want to create events and situations that we can show the film in so we've just been touring the movie like a band like you would a band yeah but we don't really want to put it on the internet and just have it be some thing that people can kind of watch three minutes of and you know just and then just shuffle you know we don't want it to be part of the like spotify experience of the modern world where all art is just execrable wallpaper you know Mm. so 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 but that being said we really believe in it we think it's like a great film i mean i think it's just a, I think it's a masterpiece honestly so how can people keep track of where they might catch you to watch it is there, is there a website they can go to or, or a... um, you know that we should do that. We should make a website. I mean, we just announced it on our Instagram actually. Okay. Well, we that's, should, a, uh, that's as good a place as any. And then, uh, yeah. And that's it. You know, we're, yeah, we're just, we, you know, we made it on 16, 16 millimeter, great cost. And, you know, cause we had no crew. It was just us and Eric Cheevers and this makeup artist. So it was really the four of us. So it's as low budget and as bare bones of production, but that that's not some thing that makes it that we think makes it good. You know, I don't. You know, when people put, "Oh, this record was made for five hundred dollars," I'm like, "Well, is it good?" You know. Yeah, but also, also, whenever it, when I, I mean, film uses that a lot. You know, this film was X, so therefore it's a real sort of everyone mucked in. But actually, if everyone did muck in, and you equate that mucking in to a day rate. And the film really cost a lot more. Just the fact that you spent X doesn't mean the film didn't cost more. It just didn't cost you more money. You know, people's results, exactly. people's time still worked cost at, money. We worked on it for two years. So yeah. if we were actually, you know, if we, exactly. It's, yeah. it's one of those like, it's a nice PR myth, isn't it? That somehow it's a plucky film, whereas actually it's still, it still involved people's time and labor you know it's like exactly yeah people just happen to work on it for free because they're our friends exactly well look sir that's all very exciting and i can't wait to see it um we're going to jump into and actually before we do that one of the things you were saying there about in the edit about it becoming more profound it's one of my favorite things about film and, and so about the film I and mean, certainly when you're making something is that you can like you were talking about you need to see it you need to show it so that's like the the main instruction of what you're trying to get across. 
But then when you see what you're make, you're showing, the double meaning, the triple meaning, the subtext can suddenly become visible when you've got when you've got that time and space of watching it all together. You know, when it's just that yeah. thing you need to film, that that close up, that you know, the thing you're going to edit to or whatever. It's just a shot, isn't it? And then when you put that shot together with the other shot, suddenly you've created context. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where no, the absolutely. magic of film comes alive. One hundred percent. And obviously the film, you know, can go in so many directions just based on editing. And, you know, I edited with Alexandra and this guy, our friend Fred. And, you know, so the scene, yeah, so it's it's interesting to see how you know, my my editing is pretty plodding and literal. And Alexandra's a bit more, she's a better editor, like mm. more collage And Fred has his style, which is great too. And so, so it's really interesting how a scene develops, you know, just based on, you know, your choice, the choices of, you know, what you're able to use and what you're able to, yeah, it's, it's, uh, anyway, yeah, but let's, uh, let's talk about films that changed my life. Yeah. So three films that impacted everything in your adult life. So people that have not, maybe not listened to this before, cause it's quite a new format for me. Ian has given me three films. We're going to do them one at a time, starting with the oldest, going to the newest in terms of years that they were released. Um, I'll I'll prompt you, Ian, with each title. Um, we're gonna do we're gonna do each film for five minutes, and when the five minutes are up, we will hear this annoying sound, <laughs> and then we'll move on to the next film. First out the gate, clocks ticking. You've given me the red shoes from nineteen forty eight. How how did how do you first come across that movie? I, you know, I saw it when I was really young, and then uh, and it just made this huge impression on me. And uh, I don't even know how it affected me, but uh, I know that you know my, you know that's just the. I mean, I, it's just such a great film for anybody. It's just about you know the the you know, reconciling love and art and Bar- and Boris Lermontov, played by Anton Walbrook, is just the greatest character in in film history, I think. I think his character is so poignant and cool and stylish and amazing. Everything he says is pure, pure poetry. The film is really extraordinary. You know, the whole kind of dissection, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the behind the scenes, you know, the making of, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's it's kind of maybe movie making's favorite thing to do this, ex, you know, this kind of deconstruction of the production, you know, this yeah. like like eight and a half and band bandwagon. And, you know, there's so many films that ply the same territory or whatever that term is, but, uh, but, uh, or that turn of phrase, but is it, about, is it in, in Red Shoes, is it about breaking the fourth wall or is it about just, well, you know, I, no, it's, I, I mean, no, it's, but it's, it is like, you know, she, it's just about this ingenue. Yeah. You know, who, who gets to be part of the, essentially the Russian ballet. You know, it's, a, it's, it's based on, you know, it's like the Cecil Beaton world of Diagilev and Nijinsky and, you know, all the, and, and it utilizes all these superstars of the Russian ballet. And Moira Shearer, who is a star of the, of, you know, Covent Garden 
And then she became a film star because she's in uh, Peeping Tom as well. Mm. And I think she's in some other films. But, uh, I mean, she's so elegant and beautiful. And uh, the film, and it, you know, the film kind of, you know, has this, this, you know, this production that's very much inspired by, you know, this, you know, this kind of the Russian ballets, you know, you, you know, you know, the Russian ballet was famous for, they would have Kandinsky or mm. Matisse or Picasso do the sets. And so it was a real, you know, Gesamtkunstwerk. They had all the great artists of the time working for this ultimate art form, you know, mm. uh, ballet. And, um, and it's just, a, it's just such a great film. It's beautiful. It's poignant. It's profound. It's got everything. And and just just to give it sort of as a bit of a social history lesson, how does how does young Ian see this film? What's what's the kind of what access? How are you getting access to this film? I mean, what was American? I'm guessing you saw it through American TV. Yeah, I guess I did. I mean, or maybe I saw it in video. I don't remember how I saw it, but um, but you know, I guess I think it's just you know, I it just affected me in the sense of you know because it's all about like total dedication. Hmm. To, to 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 what your you know your art or whatever yeah I mean art's a, you know a weird term at this point but but uh, you know it's just about total dedication and like how do you reconcile that with your you know with your personal life and your love you know mm. and uh, and Boris Lermontov is somebody who's the two things are you know irreconcilable. Yeah, because it, it's, it's that. I horrible. will never, I will never work with a dancer who, you know, who, you know, you know, he he's, he hates he hates when his dance, you know, he's a, he's a martinet, you know, he's super controlling of his of his prima ballerina, and as soon as, you know, his, you know, uh, I forget the names of the characters. But, but is, is it is it is it in a sense then is it about that the the, the sort of I don't know if you, whether you call it myth making or the old adage that there's no there's no success without pain you know that you have to suffer for your art if you're going to be successful in it which on the one hand I can see the truth in it but it doesn't seem rightfully fair that that has to be a kind of bit of barbed wire you've got to crawl, crawl through all the time yeah but it's but the pain in this you know the pain is the joy you know it's the joy. There's our five minutes, Ian. All right. We're going to move swiftly along to 1967s. Is it La Chinoise? La Chinoise, I guess. So what, I mean, this, I, I must admit, this of your three films, this one I don't know. So the floor is yours. Where do you see this and how, how does it? Um... Well, I saw this probably when I was 18 or 19 at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. Uh, and they, they, used, they just had incredible film repertory there run by this uh, programmer named Peggy Parsons, who was just a, just a great, she just was a great, I, I don't really know her personally, but she was just a, she did me a real solid. She gave me a great film education through her programming. Oh, wow. At that, through the, you know, National Gallery of Art. And, um, and she did this incredible, you know, Godard retrospective when I was very young and, um, La Chinoise was just a film that really completely defined my life. It's about uh, 
Maoist cell in 1967, Paris. It, it precedes the famous May 68 rebellions. Mm. And it's, a, it's about these students who kind of squat their friends flat, their friends' parents' bourgeois flat, in, in, and they create this, you know, terrorist cell called the Aden Araby cell. And, uh, and they just spend their days theorizing and they're just completely out to lunch, you know, and just like they're just total, you know, theoretical extremists. And their struggle is like how to turn, you know, they want to turn their, you know, it's about praxis, you know, turning the theory into practice. Mm. And, um, and, um, so it culminates with, uh, you know, uh, what's her name? Uh, Wiechemski. Uh, the star is, uh, Anna Wiechemski. Yeah. And, uh, so she goes and, you know, murders her professor or something at the Sorbonne or something. And that's kind of, <laughs> that's, and then they all go, uh, then, you know, summer's over and they all go back to their lives. <laughs> But, um, it, I mean, it reflect it reflects the time, which it is is often painted as like flowers in your hair and you know freedom of expression. That, but actually, it reflects a time of political instability that that that, that people like to forget. Well, people, uh, I think it's uh, there's a lot of kind of you know when you know the the you know the boomers. Their kind of re revisionism of you know the of the era is you know you know is is profound you know and it's kind of like uh, you know everything you know historically is kind of you know simplified and reduced and um, you know there there was a lot of you know you know ra you know real radicalism and the kind of you know things you know it's all been kind of turned into the the you know the Woodstock. The Woodstock generation, but um, yeah, I mean, I think particularly in Europe, you know, people really thought there was going to be a, you know, revolution. I mean, it's 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 bonkers to think that that in 1967, Goddard directs this film, and as you describe it, and also direct Weekend is released as well in the same year, which is like he did three he did three films that year. He did Legat Legat. Guy Savoie. Okay, for right, okay. TV, which is a feature length film for television, which is also incredible and beautiful. So, I mean, he, it's just unbelievable. And, and I think that his production was really based on the fact that he was working with a very tight team, you know? Yeah. He had a very, he had a very uh, small and dedicated team, and they all knew. Uh, you know, I mean, because Bergman was the same way. He was producing so much. I mean, the, the problem with Hollywood productions and film productions in general is that the whole thing's become incomprehensibly expensive. And, and, uh, and you know, and, and cumbersome. And, you know, it's just this thing that nobody can, you know, now it takes 10 years to make a movie. Yeah. So people's of is really uh, it just yeah it's 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 just uh, but it also but but in a way though it also speaks oh there's the five minutes mum 
I was just going to say, it speaks to an energy, a creative energy in the 60s. If you think of like the amount of albums, say, Dylan was putting out or the Beatles, you know, these are mainstream acts, but yet they're pumping out stuff. There's no no kind of like the idea of measured or timing it with anything. It's just like, I've made it, I release it. I've made it, I release it, you know? Yeah. Which is, which um... strikes you as like, it's a, you know, by 67, it's a, you're into a very vital period, which... I think what two years later it's Altamont, isn't it? And a kind of and then my nineteen seventy you got the Badaminov group comes out and then violent political movement then starts to be and actions begin to be suppressed in the Western countries as we know them. Yeah, there was a lot of um, you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of like uh you know, Manson, you know, Manson in America. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The LA. These kind of pop moments that were kind of used almost like 9-11 you know they're almost like 9-11 moments that are you know the pretext for this control this different kind of control and fear to be instituted you know what i mean like so uh, so yeah it's it's interesting i mean that's kind of uh that's the magic of media is to make is to explode a singular event into a mass consciousness event that every that determines everybody's lives it's a, a little like art you know like mm. we're talking about oh lush and laws changed my life was okay this one film has this enormous effect on everyone so the same thing you know maybe uh yeah like so you know some it's inc- some incident that's very pr- specific you know very particular like the manson murders you know is mm. ex- you know becomes a kind of thing to shift consciousness entirely about the anti-war movement, long-haired, you know, counterculture, security, policing, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, look, let's uh, let's jump into the future future with 1975's Rollerball. Rollerball. Rollerball is just an incredible film. It's really very poignant for the modern age because it's about you know, it's about cultural control and the use of sport. In this case, the use of sport. I mean, the lost record is really very similar to Rollerball hmm. because the lost record features a number one song that's called the number one record. And it's this song that plays interminably and it's, and it's the ideological, you know, it's this kind of ideological ma- mantra, you know, for the, society that the girl who is the star of the film the girl played by pauline jory you know is dealing with this you know society that's you know with this number one song and this kind of whatever anyway uh but rollerball has a sport called rollerball and everybody is obsessed with it and there's a star of the rollerball and he's and he's you know and in in the you know the the sport is really violent people keep dying and they keep changing the, the the rules of the game, rollerball, and making it more violent to get people more excited about it. So it's a little like the internet now with this kind of conflict that keeps everybody mesmerized and hypnotized and the kind of human sacrifice of celebrity where it's like, oh, this person's so great. Oh, but now we're going to destroy them, you know, and, that, and the kind of pleasure that we're supposed to gain from that. Like, oh, they got their comeuppance because yeah. they had it so good. Now we're going to destroy them. And, and they deserve it because they asked for it because they have no right to 
any kind of humanity because they're famous and they wanted this, you know, and mm. so it's very Aztec in a way. It's like this idea of like, Oh, this person and they're so great. And now we're going to rip their flesh off, you know? And it's a, it's a, it's a very weird thing. So rollerball is, is talking about all this, you know, it's like, Oh, these stars of these stars and that now we're going to watch them be murdered, you know? And um, it, fe- it feels weird that, that we were fully aware. And obviously films like, Rollerball being made of how what the impact was of mass media through television and how it had us transfixed and obviously what you've got um, eight years later you had film you had um, what's it called a video drone um, where while they're about television they are about how tran- easily transfixed we are by by screens and obviously now we're all walking around bumping into lampposts looking at our phones and yet these precursors and these, these these stories being told using genre and genre is quite a good way of sort of warning us about where we might be going wrong. And yet humanity doesn't heed the warning at all. It kind of just goes, ah, oh, well, yeah, that's just a, just a dystopian future, that rollerball. We don't have to worry about that. Well, you know, they have this whole, the whole paradigm of free will and this idea that we're all like sort of in charge and that we've chosen this, you mm. know, that we chose the digital Thing, but we didn't you know this was bully you know we were bullied into using all this technology that was made compulsory essentially and if you don't use it you're shut out of society you're basically assignment of the desert so there's really no there's no free will when it comes to like digital like iphones or you know all this stuff it's like you could say you could say oh well people chose this and this is what people want and it's so convenient it's like it's not really what people necessarily wanted they were kind of you know they were, you know, led into this paradigm. You can't, you can't tell, you can't say that people chose industrialization. They were thrown off the farms because these machines came in, and all the you know labor became you know redundant. Mm. And then they had to go to the city, and they had to work in a factory or whatever it was. You know, the way that the world changes, it's not really a democratic thing. So you know when you. Look at these digital people in Silicon Valley. They're obviously all nerds who read sci-fi, and they're obviously tailoring our world according to sci-fi. So essentially, sci-fi purports to be a prophecy, but really sci-fi is the guide for these people. These are people who take acid all day and read Philip K. Dick. They read Orwell, and they're like, hey, good idea. Let's have a big brother. Well, the, fa- the very fact that Asimov's rule about robots is how robot how AI is developed is insane. Wait, what is it? <laughs> you know, Asimov's rule about the ro- a design about robot, the three basic rules, that it will that it will only do things for the basic programming elements are from Asimov's story is that the robot you build will be for the service of mankind and that the robot you build will not will not harm humans that's kind of the as i remember the rough and the very fact that still remains the rule in in real life sorry the, the alarm going off there the fact that that's come from it's a bit like um less serious point but a bit like how george romero's zombies became the rule of zombies in all fiction you like it's just george romero's film but asimov yeah in i i think i robot isn't it um the rules of what what ai is has come from his fictional ideas about what you would say. Yeah, I, exactly. I mean, these guys, they're not, you know, they're not geniuses. They need, they need, they're guided by, you know, the thing, you know, that they grew up with. So it's, so their reference points are like, oh, 1984, Newspeak, let's engineer linguistics so that 
to control people, you know, or let's have these screens mm. that watch people and that we interact with, and that that'll be a control mechanism. I mean, the the people in Silicon Valley they they have a God complex, but they're but God, you know, the Old Testament did, didn't give them enough information, you know, mm. for how God controls, you know. So they do look to sci-fi and they okay, this is how to create a totalitarian state. I mean, I think. I mean, everything about 1984 is really, is obviously the blueprint. You know, you have these fake enemies, like, you know, the guy, the guy, the, the two-minute hate. I mean, two-minute hate, what's more like Twitter than two-minute hate? You yeah. know, it's like, oh, here's the enemy of the moment. Let's despise them. Then it turns out that the enemy is actually created by Big Brother. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I read it. I read it at school. It was a... Uh... But we, but we learned nothing at the same time. It's kind of surreal. Yeah. Or maybe we, maybe we learned, but maybe, maybe we learned it and we, and we're, and now we're, we are compelled to recreate it. Yeah. You know, maybe us by reading 1984, we, it had to become reality. Using the magic of technology, I'm able to say the three laws of robotics, as defined by Asimov, who's a fiction, let's be honest, he's a, he wrote sci-fi fiction, is a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. A robot must obey orders given to it by human beings, except when those orders conflict with the first law. A robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first and second law. And essentially, that's the root foundation of how we've developed AI. Is it? To this day, yeah. That kind of, you know, you talk to programmers. I don't but, think so. I mean, look at it. No, no, I'm, I'm saying it. I'm, I'm, but it, the, point, the point of that rule is it goes wrong in the fiction. It, doesn't, it can't work because oh, ultimately yeah. you get into the moral maze of if you've got a self-driving car, who's, which human is it protecting? The one behind the wheel, the one who's in front of it, the one in the yeah. other vehicle, which human does it protect? Yeah, it can't make that decision. Cannot the, the the data cannot do it. Yeah, somebody has to be chosen as the superior human being to uh, to be have the law have the law of robotics applied to them. Other people yeah. die. <laughs> I mean, we're already living in a world where these robot wars are going on. You know, that's what mm. the internet is. You know, it's like in America we have this this idea of the Russian bots. You know, oh, the Russian bots. But it's like, but every state actor and every corporate actor has these armies of kind of artificial intelligence people steering their agendas and this i you know what i mean mm. like with various or just creating kind of ideas of you know moral ideas essentially do you know what i mean because i mean that's sort of if you look at silicon valley it's run by libertarians you know libertarians hate government. So what they're looking for is a way to create a police state that involves no police, you know? Mm. So that's, that's what the internet is for. It's for it's, or that's what all these social media things are for. They're, they're to turn the population into the police and the prison. You know what I mean? Like, you know, where we maintain a prison with our own policing. And that's why, defund the police is actually a ruling class directive. It's actually an anti-union. It's, it purports to be uh, about racial equity, but in fact, 
it's libertarian it's kind of libertarian union busting that's you know i, I thought the, i thought the libertarians were, were kind of were, were that was their kind of achilles heel the the idea they like a police force they like an army you know they they, want- they like an army because that's about because the state is their hobby horse you know yeah, the yeah, state yeah. is their thing that they use to you know whatever you know, control the sea lanes blah 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 you know they need the army but at this point the police is the police are becoming redundant with because of this you know do you know what i mean so this is my sci-fi projection but well i, I mean if you that, if you look you know you look back at uh, fahrenheit 451 the the prediction there was that we would we would be told that reading is banned and books are banned and books are not good for us Instead, what we've done is, as, as a mass human race, we've decided we don't need anything more than a couple of sentences of Twitter or a couple of banal comments on a, on Facebook, and nobody's banned books, and yet people, lots of people, are just uh, sort of divorced from reading because of the thing with with the en- new entertainment we've introduced to our lives. That before, you know, the idea of a singular activity now is considered almost like Buddhist. The idea you might sit down and watch a film, read a book without any other screen on is is almost like novel. And I'm as guilty of it as the next person. <laughs> well, I would say that the world has been turned into words. So in a sense, the words have become more central to our lives than they ever were because mm. now people are just sitting around and read all day long. They, they spend their entire day reading, and you're right, it's not in its form of novels or even essays, but they're just reading pithy comments. And so, and the weird thing is, there's more attention than ever to kind of linguistics, like where nuance is completely discounted because now you have to say things. It's like everybody's been turned into a barrister. And the thing about legalese and, and law is it is all language, you know? So, in a sense, I would say, that instead of becoming an illiterate, you know, culture, we've become a hyper-literate culture where thing, you know, where everything, you know, people are parsing words. Oh, they said this thing. What does that mean? Blah, blah, blah. You know, we're discounting the obvious, you know, you know, the, some, you know, because people misspeak, people say things, they use the wrong words and they express themselves poorly. So then, then, but we're living in a world where that's kind of, you know, not, you know, where you see in the, in the political arena or the cultural arena where, oh, so-and-so, they said this thing there, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so that's, so that's an interesting thing where, where in a way we're becoming a more literate culture, you know what I mean? But, all, but at the same time though, that literate, that literate element though is combined with media illiteracy. So they're not media literate. They can read words and everything is literate, but but they don't understand how to how to compute it. It's like it's like you you were give, you were fed so much information because it used to the old ad used to be you know give me the information and I'll deal with it. What the internet has revealed is we get too much information we can't deal with it because why why would we? We don't need to know everything. It's not really and we don't need access to everything. And the worst thing that happens is that people start passing everything up into parcels so that I can suddenly have an understanding of the geopolitics of China. Because Terry from round the corner has put an update on his Facebook to tell me how to solve it, and I've gone, yeah, Terry's right. Terry, that's how yeah. you solve. That's how you solve China, you know. And like, and suddenly I've now 
all those historians, all those economists, all those academics that have been studying, you know, going back thousands of years and looking at how where we've got to today, Terry around the corner from me tells you, we just need to blow up a few of their ships. That's all we need yeah. to do. And then that, you know, problem solved. And then that becomes, sadly, that becomes part of a discourse because of, I, th- I think, because of like media literacy. The idea you can't well, take a source from another source and go, that source is more valid than than that source. You know, we like, I mean, we had it, you, you've had it in America. We've had it in this country. I mean, we had we had politicians saying, it's time to stop trusting experts. Like that's a politician saying it. Yeah. I mean, we live, that's, we live in that age where if you are somehow learned and have done the work, you're not to be trusted because you've got an agenda. Absolutely. No, no, we're living in a upside. Yeah, absolutely. Scholarship has been completely made archaic and quaint. And uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I write about this in uh, both of my last books. <laughs> that kind of, but anyway, that the, um, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, well, you know that they put a lot of money into these meme factories, you know, like yeah. I know somebody works for a Democrat meme factory. So these memes are really, I, I refuse to look at a meme. I refuse to use a meme. I think memes are very sinister, you know, because they reduce, you know, it's this reduction. It's as bad as kind of you know, racism or something, you know, where you're just reducing a person or an event into mm. a caricature to be. Well, look, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we could, we could maybe solve geopolitics by, by the end of today, but that won't be, that'd be a very long podcast. Um, <laughs> and the state of, we just uh, mass, need a couple of memes, a couple of the it. state of mass media. Um, but let me just recount then the three films that impacted everything in your adult life. Red Shoes from 1948, The Chinois from 1967, and Rollerball from 1975. Your film, The Lost Record, is out when people can see it. So keep an eye on the Instagrams for updates from yourself about where you're going to, what town you're in, if you're in. You know, you know we'll, we'll rely on local promoters. Yeah. The, you know, obviously we don't have that, that kind of reach. You know, it's just, uh, I mean, at one point maybe we'll, Put it on the you know internet to be free and fly with the other animals. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Well, thank you very much. See you later.